good morning, church. Wish I could say it's good to see you, but good to be with you at least. And I look forward to seeing you. I miss you. Love you guys. Hope your week was, uh, was good despite uh, the crazy times we're in. Recently, I've been thinking about a period of England's history. Uh, during World War II, it was from September 1940. So the war has been going on for about a year now. And from September 1940 through the next May, so that school year, May 41, uh, is a period known as the Blitz in London. And during that period, there was such a regular and fierce bombing by the German Air Force that that period is looked back on as the Blitz in London. And during that period, thousands and thousands of people in London lost their lives uh, Many, many of the children were taken away from the city for their protection. And I think about a million homes or buildings were destroyed during that period. And what is interesting about the Blitz is that uh, people who lived through that uh, late in their life would look back at, at that period as, as the best part of their lives. And that's just so surprising. I mean, what was it about that? Was it that they uh, together survived a tough time? Did, did God do some things in their lives and hearts during such a, uh, a critical period that they could look back on fondly? And I just can't help but thinking, will we look back on this pandemic and this period of our nation and really the world uh, fondly one day? Right now, I can't imagine that because this is, doesn't seem to be the best period of our lives, but God's at work. We just sang that, didn't we? Uh, God is at work, and during tough times, God is at work um, in unusual ways. So I just want to give you a reminder about that as we get started today. When I was a young man, I was running marathons for Nike shoes, and I had the opportunity to run in the 1980 U.S. Olympic Trials marathon. And there were two things about this marathon course that were most unusual. First of all, the race was held largely in Canada, not the United States, even though it was the U.S. Olympic trials. This is what happened. We began the race in Buffalo, New York, and we ran about five miles in the city, and then we crossed a bridge over the Niagara River into the Canadian side. And then we ran along a two-lane highway along the Niagara River on the Canadian side until the 26th point two mile finish. And so largely the race was in Canada. The second thing that was unusual about it is where it finished because this marathon, unlike any marathon that I've ever ran, finished at a spectacular waterfalls known as Horseshoe Falls. Now if you have ever had the opportunity to go to this area and see Horseshoe Falls, which was right next to Niagara Falls, it is an awe-inspiring, majestic, stunning sight. And for me, it rekindled memories of when I was a third grader because my family spent our third grade winter in Niagara Falls, New York. And from time to time, we would make a trip to see Niagara Falls and Horseshoe Falls. And particularly when I was a small child, I remember looking out over Horseshoe Falls which was so powerful, it was intimidating. 
I mean, I was at a safe distance, but it was, it was so powerful, it was intimidating to me. All that power rushing over it. I had a feeling of awe, unutterable awe. And for me, this is an image of what it means to fear the Lord. A sense of unutterable awe before the holy, all-powerful, all-sovereign God of the universe. Now, the fear of the Lord is a concept we see throughout the Bible, and especially in the Old Testament. And on the one hand, fearing God is absolutely essential to the spiritual life, but on the other hand, fearing God uh, is a term that we have ambivalence about. After all, the Bible repeatedly tells us, do not fear, do not be afraid, fear not. And so, on the one hand, we are told, do not fear, but on the other hand, we are told, fear the Lord. So, how do we put these two things together? Well, the first thing we need to do is clarify what the Bible means when it tells us, fear the Lord. What does it mean, and what does it not mean? That is our question this morning in Psalm 34, part 2. So, this summer, we're spending a few weeks in the Psalms, a summer break from the book of Acts. Last week, we looked at Psalm 34, but there was too much there for one week. And so, this week, we are looking at part two. Last week, we saw in verses one through three, the call to praise, four through six, and the last few verses, this desperate prayer. But in the middle section that we're going to look at today, seven through 14, we come to a passage on the fear of the Lord. In church, this might well be the definitive passage in all the Bible on the fear of the Lord. So, Psalm 34, hopefully you've got a Bible, a smartphone, an iPad with you, beginning in verse 7. Psalm 34, 7. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear Him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Oh, fear the Lord, you His saints. For those who fear Him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Church, this is God's holy word. All righty, the fear of the Lord is mentioned four times in the passage I just read. Once in verse 7, twice in verse 9, and once in verse 11. But the, the point of the entire eight verses is the fear of God. Verse 7 says, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Now, first of all, what an act of grace on God's part that he sends his angels to be with us and protect us and minister to us and bless his people. That is a measure of God's protective heart for those who fear him because he sends his angel to those who fear the Lord. Now, that verse, verse 7, does not really tell us what it means to fear the Lord. But the next verse, 8, we get some insight into it. As we go on to read, Oh, taste and see 
that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Now, verse 8 does not go on to say, blessed is the man who fears the Lord, but who takes refuge in the Lord. Now, Hebrew poetry uh, does not uh, normally rhyme like English poetry often does, but there is a parallelism of thought, a parallelism of meaning. And verse 8 is in parallel with verse 7. And the parallelism suggests that the fear of God in verse 7 is further defined and elaborated by the take refuge in him by verse 8. So we're saying those who fear the Lord take refuge in the Lord. That is, we trust the Lord. We depend upon the Lord for protection and safety. So right off the bat, we see that the fear of the Lord is not a cringing fear where you're afraid of God and you run from God. In fact, the fear of the Lord is precisely the opposite. It is a healthy respect for God so that you run to God and not from God. You take refuge in God. A few verses earlier in verse 4 that we came to last week, David writes these words. He says, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. And then now he comes to this section defining the fear of the Lord. So, uh, Having fears, being afraid, is completely incompatible with fearing God, a healthy respect for God. Because of David's fear of the Lord, because of his reverential awe before God, God delivered David from all his fears. Oswald Chambers, who wrote My Utmost for His Highest, classically put it this way, the remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. Now, church, during this time of pandemic and tension and disunity and financial uh, collapse, uh, this is a measure. This is an indicator to what extent we're fearing the Lord because to the extent that we fear the Lord, we don't fear anything else. And if we don't fear God, we're going to fear everything else. And so this would be a great indicator of our fear of the Lord. So what have we seen in verses 7 and 8? We've seen that the fear of the Lord includes the idea that we will take refuge in the Lord. We will trust the Lord. We will have confidence in the Lord. We will flee to the Lord for protection and safety. Because we respect His power, His greatness, His glory, His goodness... His majesty, we will take refuge in him, as in verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. He's good. Blessed is the man, the woman, who takes refuge in him. It would be something like this. Imagine that you are hiking in the Swiss Alps. Gail and I had the opportunity to do that a couple years ago, and it was, it was beautiful. Say you're hiking in the Swiss Alps. It's the late spring, and all of a sudden, you find yourself in a fierce snowstorm, and pretty soon it's a, it's a blizzard, and you're stumbling along in the blinding, freezing snow. By the way, we didn't have that. But imagine this. You're stumbling along in the snow, and you're not sure you're going to survive this. All of a sudden, up ahead in the snow, you can make out a cabin, a Swiss chalet, and there's a fire burning inside. And you make your way to it, and there's an elderly man who invites you in and it's warm and toasty inside? 
Well, that is a picture of God being our refuge. He is our Swiss chalet in the blizzard. He is our shelter, our labrie, our labrie. We take refuge in him because we have such reverence for him and know his goodness. We run to him for protection and for safety. And by the way, I recognize that it might be a little hard to imagine a blizzard in the July Houston heat, but hopefully you did it. All righty. He's good. We taste and see that he's good. And so we flee to him for refuge in all of life, including the kind of challenges that we're facing right now. Now, church, there is a classic story in literature about the goodness of God and fear of God. And it comes from C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. And it comes from the first book, the fairy tales about Aslan, the golden lion, representing the person of Christ. And in the description of this fierce lion, lion, Lewis has captured the twin sides of Christ's character in a remarkable way. This imaginary land of Narnia uh, had just, uh, the, the, the kids who were in there just had heard from the beavers about this wonderful and fearful Aslan. And they are promised that they will get to meet him. And, and then the kids respond. Is he quite safe, Susan said? I shall feel re- rather nervous meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And in that little depiction, we have both of the the goodness of God as well as this reverential fear before God that the Bible refers to as the fear of the Lord. So the first aspect, if we fear the Lord, we will take refuge in the Lord. The next two verses, 9 and 10, go together, giving us another insight, a second insight into fearing God. Verse 9, oh, fear the Lord. You, his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Now, verse 9 tells us to fear the Lord. In fact, it tells us twice to fear the Lord. And that if we do that, we will lack nothing, that is, nothing that we truly need. But again, Verse 9 just states the fact, fear the Lord. It doesn't tell us what it means to fear the Lord. But 10b goes on. It says the young lions suffer one in hunger, but those who seek the Lord like no good thing. It does not say those who fear the Lord like no good thing, but the parallelism in the Hebrew language is telling us that if we fear the Lord, then we will seek the Lord. So this is another indicator. First of all, we saw if we fear the Lord, we will trust the Lord. We will take refuge. Secondly, if we fear the Lord, we will seek the Lord. What does it mean for you and me to seek the Lord? Well, simple. We seek the Lord in His Holy Word. We read and obey and study His Word. And we seek the Lord by calling out to God. We worship. We sing. We pray. We call out. We confess. We give thanks. 
Now, now there are other ways to seek the Lord. We obey Him, and we, uh, we practice other spiritual disciplines like fasting and celebrating. But the heart of it is that we seek God in His Word and in prayer. So, church, if we fear the Lord, then we will seek Him. If we are not seeking the Lord, if we are not praying much or reading the Bible much or worshiping much or giving thanks much, then whatever we claim, we don't really fear the Lord or we would be seeking Him. Now, again, let's, let's remember that if we are afraid of the Lord, we will run from Him. But if we fear the Lord, we will run to Him or we will seek Him. It just goes together. Now, church, note the promise embedded in both verses 9 and 10. Those who fear the Lord will lack nothing. He repeats it twice. That is, God will provide everything we truly need. Verse 9, O fear the Lord, you as saints, for those who fear Him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Is that not the great message of Psalm 23, 1? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, lack. Or in Psalm 84, 11, for the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. So, it does not mean that God, of course, gives us everything we want because at times we want things that we don't uh, really need. It does mean that God will give us everything that we truly need. And that should encourage us, especially at times like this, that God will provide for us what we truly need. Now, church, so far, we've seen two of the three couplets in the psalm, and we've seen two insights so far into what it means to fear the Lord. First of all, we will take refuge in the Lord. We will trust His power and greatness and goodness and flee to Him for protection. He is our Swiss chalet in the fierce blizzard. Secondly, we will seek the Lord. We will pray. We will read the Bible. We will call out to Him. We will worship Him because we fear the Lord. Now we come to the third and final stanza that defines a third aspect of what it means to fear the Lord. And we find it in verse 11 through 14. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. And so this kind of adds special gravity to the whole passage because he is saying, I'm going to teach you about fear of the Lord. And then this is what he says. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil. That might apply to Facebook, by the way. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. So what does it mean? Can we not summarize that, that we're going to turn away from evil if we fear God, that we're going to obey God, that we're going to turn from sin, and that we're going to please the Lord in every way we can? I mean, he gets specifics like keep your tongue from evil, your lips from deceit, you're going to do good. You're going to seek peace and pursue it. But we could wrap it up. We are going to turn from sin and turn to God and obey Him and surrender to Him. Now, church, at this point in the message, we found the third aspect. So far we've seen if you fear God, you will take refuge in Him. You'll trust Him. You'll trust Him. 
You won't give way to fear about COVID and financial disaster. You will trust him. You will flee to him for refuge. Secondly, if we fear the Lord, we will seek him. We will be those people who every day find ourselves along with God with an open Bible, praying and worshiping and seeking him. The third thing is that we will obey him. We will turn from sin and obey him. Now, at this point, what would be much easier for all of us is that if we would just leave it in general terms, we're going to obey the Lord. But that seems to me so cowardly. Why don't we look at some of the most common sins of the church in America today that all of us at times struggle with? And this is the sort of thing that we're talking about. If you fear the Lord, you will not do these things. Okay, let me just list five or six common ones today. First of all, we will choose to forgive the person who has hurt us. Now, that's one of the biggest challenges of the spiritual life. But we will choose to do it because we fear God more than anything else. We will surrender our anger and bitterness to God. It won't be easy always, um, but, but we will make the choice. Lord, I give this to you. Some of you need to do that right now, right now. Secondly, we will speak the truth. We won't tell lies. We won't deceive. I mean, the amount of deception and prevarication and dishonesty is, is just rife, even among Christians. We will speak the truth. Thirdly, we will put God first in our lives, not family, career, politics, money, comfort, anything else, but we will heed the first of the Ten Commandments, have no other gods before me. God will be first in our lives. I think some people today during all this controversy are looking to other sources, including media sources, more than this Bible. God is first. Thirdly, or fourthly, because God is first, he gets the first tenth of our income. At least the first tenth. Now, some of you may not have income right now or much income, and God knows that. But if you got income, then no questions asked. You just, God gets the first part. Fifthly, no sexual sin. No sex outside of marriage. No pornography. Just not an option for those who seek the Lord. I mean, we live in a sex-crazed culture, but followers of Christ say, no, sex is God's sacred gift for marriage only with a man and a woman. Sixth, husbands. The Bible says that we are to love our wives as Christ loved the church. That is so sacrificial. Wives, the Bible says that you are to respect your husbands and submit to them as unto the Lord. Church, that's just a half a dozen specific things that are widely disobeyed today. And if you fear the Lord and you want God's hand of favor and blessing upon you, then we will obey specific, challenging commandments like these and a thousand more. The writer Annie Dillard once wrote this. She says, on the whole, I do not find Christians outside the catacombs sufficiently sensible of conditions. 
Does anyone have the foggiest idea of what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or, as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, making up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It is madness to wear straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. Annie Dillard's point is that we're talking about the awesome majesty of God himself. And he is the one with whom we have to deal. Remember that image of Horseshoe Falls, the power of God? This is the God we are dealing with. He is not safe, but he is good. He's the king, I tell you. Church, God is calling us, you and me, not just to love him and trust him and know him and serve him. He is also calling us to fear him. This is not a cringing fear, but a reverential, awe-filled fear of God because he's God. It's difficult for us to fully embrace the concept of fearing God if we, if we fail to remember who God is in his greatness and in his goodness. We may remember that God is the creator, the one who spared nothing, not even his, and the one who spared nothing, not even his beloved son to redeem us. It will refocus our perspective on who God truly is. He's the creator God of the galaxies. And he is the God of the cross who paid for sin in his holiness and in his love for us. So church, Psalm 34, maybe the definitive passage on fear of God in the Bible, tells us that if we fear the Lord, we will do three things. We will take refuge in him. We will seek him. We will obey him. And the promises we just read as we do this is God's going to send his angel to encamp around you and deliver you. You're going to taste and see that the Lord is good. You're going to lack nothing that you truly need. Doesn't mean you're not going to suffer at times. Of course we will in a fallen, broken world. But nothing will touch you that does not first go through God's loving hands. No final harm can touch you even during a blitz or a pandemic. Now, let me close with this question, church. How can we, you and me, cultivate more and more a healthy fear of God, a God-pleasing fear of God? How can we do that? Well, there's a lot to say that I'm not going to say, but I'm going to make one point, one simple point. You cannot spend time in this book every day with an open heart and not learn the fear of the Lord. You could not help yourself from learning the fear of the Lord. Church, what is God saying to you this morning about fearing Him? Please pray with me. Just be still before the Lord wherever you are. Hopefully if you've got kids, they're not too busy right now. But you can quiet your heart. You can ask God, oh God, what are you saying to me about fear of the Lord? 
Lord, is there any action point for me? Anything specific? Just wait on Him. Lord, help us. Lord, help us. Help us to be a people, Lord, who trust our God, who seek our God, who obey our God. Friend, if you're, you're not sure where you stand with Jesus, if you've never trusted Him as your Savior, you're not sure if you have, just do it right now. Just call out to Him. Breathe a prayer. Jesus, come and save me. Because I fear you, I need a Savior. He'll do it. He'll do it. Please, there's a digital card you can indicate that you trusted Christ today and we can get you some material to help you grow. Papa, we love you because you loved us first. Bless these, your people. In Christ's name, amen.